I don't know if you heard about it or not, and I hope you didn't, but if you did, well, what I'm thinking of here is a very outrageous headline from last night, from last week, that a popular evangelical pastor pulled a, a crazy stunt in his pulpit last week while he was preaching. The pastor deciding to make an illustrative point about the doctrine that he was trying to hammer home in his sermon called up one of his brothers and when he appeared before him on the stage he spit in his hand and he smeared snot and saliva all over the brother's face. And the reason he engaged in this uh, ridiculous behavior was supposedly to reinforce a position that he was trying to make, which is that maintaining God's vision sometimes takes great faith when things get nasty. But just think for a moment in the place in which he stood. He was in the house of God. He was in worship. Just think about the very thing that he was engaged in which was the sacred duty and obligation of the preaching of the Word of God. But instead of treating it with sacredness and reverence and awe, he reduced it to base theater. Instead of preaching the Word of God as he was commanded and seeking the help and the guidance of the Spirit of God to bring home the Word of God for application, matters into his own hands. And he resorted to juvenile tactics to somehow reinforce the powerful, inspired, inerrant word of the living God. Now, when we hear things like this, uh, we shake our head and discuss, and uh, some of us probably imagine that that's probably just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the ridiculous shenanigans pulled in the local evangelical church. But this morning, the question that confronts us is, why are we bothered by it? What makes it wrong? And the answer to that question is not that we're repulsed by it. Because the measure of what we enjoy or appreciate in the worship of God has nothing to do with our own subjective tastes or attitudes. The reason why we should be repulsed and, and, um, and deeply troubled and disgusted by such behavior is not because it affects us, it should trouble us because it's not commanded by the Word of God. The problem with such behavior and antics is that they are seeking to replace the authority and the standard of the Word of God for the opinions and commandments and wisdom of men. That's the problem. And Paul wanting to correct such sinful and ridiculous behavior sets forth here in the Word of God over against the false teachers, which he knows were within earshot of his instructions to Timothy here. He lays down the principle here in our text that Christian conduct in the house of God must be shaped and governed by the infallible truth of God's Word. That's the main point of our text here this morning. That Christian conduct in the church and even beyond is to be shaped and governed and guided by the infallible Word of God. We're going to break that down into two points this morning. First of all, a guide to conduct, and secondly, a vision of the truth. And so the first thing that I want us to think about here as we come into our text in verse 14 is to notice the standard of conduct in God's house. And the entry point to that standard of conduct is those initial words, these things 
I am writing to you these things. And it's clause initial in the original, which means it is emphatic. So whatever consists in the, the category and the stuff or the things that belongs in that demonstrative pronoun phrase, that is what the Apostle Paul is communicating for the conduct of the church. And so what we would do at this point is think back into our text and ask, what does these point to? That should be obvious to us. What these points to is obviously the the whole exposition of offices and officers which we have here in chapter 3. And so we might think back to the fact that in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man despires the office of the overseer, it's a fine work that he desires. Then we might think about the fact that the Apostle Paul speaks to one of the two ordinary and perpetual offices of the church, the office of elder. And that he lists a whole series of moral and spiritual and theological qualifications which a man must meet in order to serve in the house of God. Beyond that, we might think of the whole discussion of the diaconate and the call which Christ places upon some to be servants of mercy in his church and the qualifications and the theological convictions and the orderliness of life which they must be characterized by. So all of that would be squeezed back into this word these in verse 14. But I think a very good case can be made that these things points all the way back to the beginning of chapter 2 verse 1 where the Apostle Paul begins to speak of the prayer life of the church particularly when it meets as a congregation in worship. And so what the Apostle does from, from chapter 2 verse 1 is unfold the prayer life of the church and then he unfolds the worship of the church and then he comes into the offices of the church. So if you take in this section as a whole what the Apostle Paul is saying these things refers to all of that. So that vast, massive, absolutely weighty set of instructions is all a part of that content which the Apostle Paul is speaking about as he writes now to Timothy, notice to you, who is being addressed here. And the fact of the matter is that the Apostle has two audiences. Clearly he's speaking to Timothy. He says, I'm writing this to you. And the second personal pronoun is in the singular in number, so we know clearly he speaks of Timothy. As you move on to verse 15, he says, I'm writing that you will know, and so the verbal ending there, and you will know, is also singular. So it's undoubtedly true that the Apostle Paul is speaking this to Timothy. But you know what? The Apostle Paul knows that Timothy has a little, a little bird on his shoulder, and that's called the church. You see, everything that the Apostle lays out here in 1 Timothy is designed not just to address Timothy, but it is designed to address the whole of the people of God. One way we can confirm that is if you were to just turn to the very end of 1 Timothy chapter 6, you'll notice that Paul concludes this letter by saying, Oh, Timothy, guard the thing entrusted to you, singular. And then he he concludes with a universal note, grace be with you all, plural. See, Paul knows he has two audiences here. Timothy, as the representative of the church, which is in Ephesus, 
and the whole of the people of God. So the things that are being written here are for the church. And they're written to be preemptive. We see that in the expression of hope to come. The Apostle Paul says, I'm writing these things hoping to come before long. And hope is a fairly strong verb. And so it has almost the strength of forecast. He's forecasting that he is coming to Timothy and to visit the church in Ephesus. And yet, there is a a ring of hesitance in it. You see, if you were to look over at Titus chapter 3, verse 12 this morning, you would notice that Paul tells uh, Titus that he is going to come winter with him in Nicopolis. Well, most scholars believe that the apostle intended to first stop at Ephesus and visit Timothy and then go on to Nicopolis. And so, in a short time, it was thought maybe he would make it there to Timothy to come alongside him. And why? Well, Calvin gives the answer. In order to repress the insolence of those who were growing more haughty on account of his absence. You see, you remember the whole reason why Timothy was placed here in Ephesus is because his duty was to shut the mouths of the false teachers. And so Calvin says, as he writes to Timothy, that uh, he knows that part of the people who are listening in are the false teachers in the church who claim their false visions and their false spiritual authority. And so the very things that are being addressed here are likely things which the false teachers were acting in opposition to. And so he speaks these things to Timothy, these things to the church, and these things to the false teachers. Their conduct is to be circumscribed entirely by Scripture. But now you see the the hesitant swept out in a negative term in verse 15, but in case I'm delayed. And really the grammar there suggests he he knows it's going to happen. And so what you could see here is that these instructions are a, are a shot across the bow. They're a shot across the bow against anyone who would set themselves up in Christ's church and pretend to be a teacher and a leader in Christ's church and yet do it based upon their own authority and according to their own standards. Think of smearing snot on people's faces. That is not the conduct which is appointed in Christ's church. And when you see such foolish and sinful and juvenile and disgusting and repulsive conduct, we know that doesn't bear the name Christ. So why is he writing? Well, he writes because he wants them to know how to conduct himself in the house of God. Look at that word, so that, in the middle of verse 15. In case I'm delayed, I write, so that. We love these words. We always stop on these words. Because in some ways, the Bible is like uh, so many pieces of a puzzle. And sometimes, the way we put together uh, the meaning and the sense of the text is we take some of these pieces and we start to see how they fit together. And a word like so that tells us that that it's a loaded word. 
Because it, it is a forecast. It, it is a signal pointing to something. It's about to explain why Paul is writing. And so he says, so that. And the thing that he spotlights here is duty. I want you to look at the whole uh, phrase with me now. So that you will know how one ought to conduct himself. We start with the necessity of duty. Look at the word ought. That is a powerful term in the Greek. It speaks of either one, a necessity because it's sovereignly intended or ordained by God, or it is a logical and moral necessity. You have either option before you. But it is so full of strength, it's an unyielding verb. Ought means this is how it's done, and there's no other way. The other thing here that's important to note is knowledge. Paul's writing so Timothy will know. All of that is included in these things constitutes that, that great body of knowledge that Paul is thinking of here, which is aimed at the conduct of the church. But I think it should strike us this morning that the knowledge which God would have us to know is written in black and white. It's chiseled in stone in your Bible this morning. We don't have to guess what is the knowledge of God. We don't have to wonder what in the world would God have us do? We don't have to ask the question this morning, how what does true prayer look like? What kind of people should serve the church? How many people should serve the church? None of that is in question. And the reason it's not in question is because the Apostle Paul said, it's been set in stone. It is written. These things I write so that you will know. There's an inseparable connection between the inspired word which is being communicated here and the knowledge that the church of God possesses. The knowledge we are to have is contained in the word and the thing that it would bear upon is conduct. Notice the word here, behave or conduct. It's about practices and patterns of behavior. And the interesting thing about this verb is it's reflexive. And a reflexive verb means that the person carrying out the action is engaged in it with intentionality. So it's not just doing things. It's doing things with intentionality and purpose. That's the kind of conduct that should be performed in the house of God. Work, labor, duty, conduct that is willful and that is according to what God prescribes. So this is what Timothy is to be about. He's to be about what's on public record. And again, all of this is said, why? Because 
the apostle knows the context of this letter. I think it's safe to assume that Timothy knows all about these things. After all, he was catechized on his mother's knee. I'm pretty sure he learned about prayer. I'm pretty sure he learned about the regular principle of worship. I'm pretty sure that as he went on the missionary journeys with the Apostle Paul and watched him build churches, he knew what the officers were and what their qualities were. And he knew what the church was to look like. I don't think this instruction is born of Timothy's ignorance. It's because the record needs to be put straight. You see, those false teachers were claiming private revelation. And over against private revelation, Paul puts on public notice the written Word of God. And there's a couple of points of application that are important there. And the first is that teaching which governs church conduct is contained in Scripture. Okay? Teaching which governs church conduct is contained in Scripture. And here, I take a shot at Rome. Because if you were to look at the teaching of Rome and the worship of Rome and, and the conduct of Rome and the church government of Rome, what you'd find is a whole lot of stuff you couldn't find anywhere in Scripture. If you took your Bible and you turned it upside down and you shook out all of the, the Bible verses in Scripture, you wouldn't find most of what they do. So why do they do it? Well, at the time of the Reformation, when they were confronted about it, they said, ah, but you missed the fact that what governs the church is not just what's in the Bible, but also what's in living tradition passed on by the bishops. You see, secret knowledge communicated from one bishop to the next to one generation to the next, that's the supplement to the Word of God. Now, who would have been in a better position than Timothy to be the recipient of private knowledge? A man who sat around campfires with the Apostle Paul. A man who watched this man preach and teach all over. A man who no doubt was personally and privately instructed in, in great lengths and depths. Do you suppose Timothy might know some of this stuff that had never been put on record? Why wouldn't have the Apostle Paul simply said, you'll remember what I told you in, let's see here, Laodicea, or whatever I told you in Antioch, or wherever else. And we could have discerned that content by just reading the rest of the book and drawing it out. That's not what Paul does. He puts it on record so that there would be a principle, and the principle is this. The conduct that is acceptable in the house of God is the conduct that is contained in the Scriptures. I'm writing so you will know. You see that, people of God? The conduct which is prescribed by God for the house of God is contained in the Scriptures. The other thing, and it's very related, but it's important nonetheless, the conduct which God requires 
is in Scripture. This is slightly different. The one is, where do we find this knowledge? You see? Some will say, from God. <laughs> That's pretty good. Have you heard from God? I could show you a whole lineup of people who tell me they've heard from God. But I don't know what His voice sounds like. I do know what the Bible says, and I know this is from God. So the issue in the first point is, how do we know God is speaking? The Apostle Paul tells you, you know it because the Bible said it. But the next thing is, what's the nature then of this authority? You see, it's one thing to have knowledge, but how authoritative is it? And the reality is here, the Apostle Paul saying, it's supreme authority. Whatever these things is that set of requirements that is to regulate your conduct. So we could say there is a regulative principle of prayer. And a regulative principle of worship. And a regulative principle of church government. And that regulative principle is that the Word of God teaches it. And of course that implies whatever is not taught in the Word of God is contrary. And it's false. It's too bad the church doesn't know that. Because the church is overrun today with a lot of false doctrine and a lot of false teaching and a lot of false practice because they listen to a lot of people with a whole lot of good ideas. That is not a Reformed Presbyterian church. A Reformed Presbyterian church is a church where Christ exercises soul supremacy and authority and kingship and he mediates that through his word. That's what it is to be reformed and a reformed Presbyterian. Notice how the nature of the conduct, and here I'm really setting up for the duty, but that duty is shaded in by the sphere, and so I'm going to call this nature, but there's two things he says here about the church which are critical. And the first one he says about the church is that it's the household of God in verse 15. This is the sphere of conduct. The household of God. There's a couple of ways to take it, and they have a little bit different shades of meaning. On the one hand, the translation household makes you think of a family. So if you were to look at verse 5, for instance, and you see here the apostle speaks of the elder. He says, if he doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Here, the apostle envisions an analogy between the household of this man and the household of the people of God. So some would look at this and say household is a reference to the grace of adoption into the family of God. Then there are others who look at this and say house refers to structure and they would point forward in our verse to the pillar and ground of the truth, which are architectural terms. And so they would say structure is in view. And they would say because structure in view, it means it's the place where God dwells. Well, I have uh, to tell you this morning, I'm hard-pressed between to choose between the two. I mean, what's more powerful to see that you have been adopted into the household and the family of God and that He's your Father or 
the, <clears throat> the conduct is in the structure of God's house where he dwells. I don't know. I consulted Calvin, and he seemed to split the baby on it. So I'm okay with saying, here are your options, but either points to the nature of the conduct because of the place where you're in. You behave yourself in the family home because it's the family home. You don't run around and act like a fool in the family home. Otherwise, the head of the house is going to make sure you get squared away. He should. Home cannot be a jungle. But if it's a household, it's a, if it's a structure, there's a way to be where we meet with God. We don't just run around and act crazy. It's conduct that's governed by the very nature of the place you meet. So I don't know. Which one is it? You, you pick. Church of the living God. And the emphasis here is on the fact that it's owned by God. And not just God, but the living God. That, that title, living God, colors in this phrase. Almost to, to say that this is the place uh, that God not only possesses, but has His eye on. This is a great title from the Old Testament. Remember the psalmist in Psalm 42. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. Across the New Testament is a very active uh, title. Speaking of God mediating salvation, the point is God uh, providing cleansing to sanctify people for worship and service. Either way, I mean, to say the place where you serve is the place of the living God is, is to place all of the people of God under the most sacred sense of duty. I know you don't feel it when you walk in here. Who would? We always laugh about a Reformed uh, church building just being four walls in a sermon, right? Because in a sense, it's very true that what adorns the place doesn't matter. It's irrelevant, as long as it's not idolatrous. It can be as plain as possible. But there is something that the mind's eye needs to be aware of, that when the people of God gather together under Christ... This is sacred space for that moment. There's something about what we are doing which isn't just ordinary. We should appreciate the awe and the wonder of being in church. Young people, one way you learn about God is by sitting here. And I know you're probably bored. And I know some of it you can't understand. But one thing you are learning, I hope, as you come and sit in our worship services, is that when we come here, we meet a majestic and glorious and powerful and holy and sovereign God. And this isn't a time for pranks. I hope what we understand here is that what we're doing is, a, is full of reverence. Young people, as you sit here week after week, you're learning about God and how He would be treated and respected. That's why your dad takes you out sometimes and warms your seat to make sure you're respecting the place. Because it's not okay. It's not okay to act up here. This is the place where you show respect to God. So when you see the house of the living God, you're speaking about the kind of conduct that's suitable for coming and meeting the God of, who's the maker of the heaven and earth. So it's important how we act. 
All of that now is designed to, to be the backdrop of duty. Notice duty here is you come into the last thing. Pillar and ground of the truth. Pillar and support of the truth. This is the third analogy, but it's slightly different than, in function than the prior ones. The prior ones were described the sphere. This is to describe the duty, the role, the function of the church. You see, the conduct that Paul is prescribing is now being spelled out in a sense. It's called the pillar. And, and one of the things about a pillar is it's an ancient architecture because vast columns were used to support and to hold up the ceiling in a large building. And so if you've ever seen pictures of, of ancient majestic buildings in Greece and Rome, what you'll see are ruins which contain lots of pillars. Their job was to be something firm. And the fact that they still stand there today tells you how firm they were. So when the, the apostle uses pillar and he applies it to the church, he's applying an image of vigor and strength. He's not talking about uh, something that is droopy and bent over, feeble in hands. No, the church is is spoken of with an image of strength and vitality and vigor. The next term here is support. And there's a, a debate about what's the right way to understand this because this is the only time in the New Testament this word is used. The only other time it's used in Greek is in Christian writings. There's a sense in which we don't know precisely what it is. And so some translations have ground, but the only problem with ground is Rome takes that word ground and it uses it to make the argument that the church stands over the word. Bad. You cannot make that argument from this text because no one knows for sure it means ground. And so, in fact, it's more likely to mean support. It's more likely to have something thematically and topically related to pillar. So it means most likely a support, something that stabilizes. And so now you have two terms which tell you what the church is about. Hold up and hold firm. Hold up and hold firm. And the thing that it does that to is the truth. Here's the calling of the church. To hold up and hold firm the truth. Calvin has a great quote here. Were all the praises of heathen philosophy collected into one heap? What is this in comparison of the dignity of this wisdom, which alone deserves to be called the light and truth, the way and the kingdom of God? I love it when he takes swipes at secularism. Because secularism thinks it's so smart, doesn't it? Put a white coat on somebody, with some of these small reading glasses, and you've got a genius on your hands. They can predict the future. They know things, right? Till they don't. Because by definition, science means you don't know anything. Literally. Don't get me started on inductive reasoning. It's false by definition. That's science. But everybody runs around according to them as having godlike status. Calvin is right to take the swing at it here. The truth isn't what you hear from the mouth of somebody wearing a white lab coat. The truth is what the Word of God says. 
And so here we have this truth, and it's all the truth that Paul's been speaking about here, the truth which bears on salvation and the truth that bears on the order and discipline and conduct of the church. In fact, you're going to see truth amplified in verse 16 in a, in a magnificent poetic way. But you see here, this is the calling of the church, is to not take the words of people wearing white lab coats and, and amplify that as with a speaker, a loudspeaker. No, the calling of the church is to take what it knows is true, which is the Word of God, and hold it up, hold it firm. That's the public ministry of the church. That's what the preachers are to do. So Calvin said, what a weight rests on the shoulders of pastors. It's intended to remind them of the fidelity, industry, and reverence they have to discharge. See where not to be smearing boogers on people's faces? See why? All the other ridiculous juvenile stunts that you hear about all the time that just make you shake your head and wonder, what in the world are they doing with Jesus? All the folly and silliness and the junior high level antics, you just wonder. That's not the calling of the church. And one reason why the church today is so weak is because it's been fed a diet of this for the last 40 years. I actually remember arguing with kids I knew about Arminianism and the extent of the atonement when I was a kid. Find a local evangelical church where most of the youth group can spell Arminianism. See, it's changed. Because it was cool and it was clever and it was fun and, hey, a lot of people showed up. No, the duty of the church is to take the pure word. I was sitting in ER this morning and the nurse asked me, I said, I got to get out of here. Why? I said, I got to go to church. She looked at me and said, well, you don't feel well. Why would you be thinking about church? I said, I'm the pastor. Isn't there somebody to replace you? No. Eventually she asked, well, what's the message for today? I said, conduct governed by truth. She looked at me like I was an alien, had bananas coming out of my ears. Why? Because it's foreign. What church would preach about stuff like that? Don't you know most people want to know how to, to get rich? To move to a better level of the suburbs? See, this is the problem. The church isn't doing this. The church isn't doing this. The apostle doesn't give Timothy wiggle room here. He says, this is your calling. Hold it up and hold it firm. And if you don't, as Calvin said, all manner of falsehoods, errors, impostures, superstitions, and every kind of corruption will reign. Huh. Those words are almost prophetic. All in the name of Jesus. But it's not just the ministry of the word, it's you. If the church stopped at the ministry holding the word up and holding it firm, it wouldn't get very far. 
Because the word that is preached is to be taken up by the people of God as they hear it. It is to settle into their hearts and to be put in practice in their life. And if the people of God don't conform their practices and their ways and their beliefs according to the word, all the church will be is a mouth. That's it. All the church will be is a mouth. It's the the duty of the people of God to take this word and to embody it and to put it into practice in their life. With the result being, you might appear a little strange at work because you're not like everybody else. But nonetheless, the way the church becomes salt and light in the world around us is by taking this truth and living it out. Holding it up and holding it firm. Notice, people of God, the glory of the truth here. I want us to look at the latter portion of our text because it contains one of the most marvelous visions of truth you can find in all of Scripture. And it's cast in terse poetic form. Even the way that the apostle accents it is gripping. He says, by common confession... The word doesn't mean that. The word doesn't mean that. The word literally means that which is question about, uh, unquestionably true above everything. It, it highlights the certainty of this. In other words, you could translate this with all certainty. And what is certain beyond anything? Great is the mystery of godliness. By the way, if you have a pen handy, go ahead and write the in front of godliness because that's what it says. The mystery of the godliness. And he says it's great. It's lofty. It's sublime. It's majestic. It's glorious beyond comprehension. It is the majesty of the mystery of the godliness. And the reason why it's so glorious is because this truth, this mystery, is all about Christ. It's personal godliness here, embodied in the form of the Savior. Notice here, there are six lines which unfold and recount the mystery of the godliness. He was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. There's a motivated sequence here. Just notice it. The first word there, revealed, points us to the incarnation of the Son of God. Across the New Testament, when this word revealed is used, it points to Christ in his flesh. That's confirmed by what's followed, revealed in the flesh. And so the apostle starts with the thing which is foundational to all of Christian faith, which is the incarnation. You can't have Christianity without it. Christianity is not like Islam, which is about a bunch of morals and doing good. Christianity is about Christ. Without it, you don't have the faith. 
It's for our salvation. The Nicene Creed, we recite this every three or four Sundays. I believe in the one Lord Jesus Christ, only begotten Son of God, born of the fathers before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God from true God, begotten, not made consubstantial with the Father, through Him all things were made for us and for our salvation was incarnate by the Virgin Mary as made man. You don't have Christianity without this. Without this only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, begotten, not made consubstantial with the Father. You don't have Christianity. But notice here, the Apostle is placing this first. He begins with the, with the incarnation. This is where the church begins its confession about Christ. And then notice next, vindicated in the Spirit. And this is a reference to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ. And the vindication is about this. The Son of God took upon Himself a true human nature and was born of the Virgin Mary and bears our flesh. And guess what? Everybody who looked at Him thought He was who? Jesus, the son of Joseph, the carpenter, who had a bunch of brothers who didn't like Him. Remember how he preached in his own synagogue in Capernaum? And they said, who's this hayseed telling us what to do? You see, the glory revealed. The vindication by the Spirit is the resurrection. It indicates that all the truth claims were right. And then it goes on to talk about how he was seen. Right? He was seen. He was seen by the angels. And you take that verb seen and you, you flush it out across the New Testament. What does it mean? Well, in its form, it's only used in the New Testament to refer to visual experiences of the resurrected body of Christ. There's one other place where it could be used differently, and that's the ascension where the angels are standing by. But either way, this is a way of speaking about this Son of God who was vindicated by the Spirit was seen. And there's real testimony about Him. And it's given by the angels. And after that testimony is confirmed about Him, what follows? The preaching of the Christ. So He is proclaimed among the nations according to the command of Christ. And guess what? When He is proclaimed, He is believed upon. And that's the response. This is the summary of what happens when the Word is preached. It's believed. Calvin has um, captured the wonder of this statement when he says that this testifies to the efficacy of the preached gospel, that it's no ordinary miracle. And then he goes on to say this. It's a testimony to the efficacy of the, the no ordinary miracle because of the sinful, corrupt, and depraved human heart. He says, it subdues to obedience those who seemed incapable of being taken. See the wonderful grandeur, loftiness, and, and majesty of the truth is that this message of the Christ and the perfection of, of His perfect work, when it is proclaimed, saves the people who look like they were incapable of being subdued by its power. 
That is the mystery of this great godliness. Is that the word about Jesus Christ actually saves because Christ by His Spirit applies the word to the heart and then finally taken up into glory. Which is an obvious reference to the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you can see that this vision of truth moves from what? From the incarnation to the resurrection to the ascension. The major redemptive historical events of the New Testament, the mystery of the godliness. This, people of God, is that vast sum and deposit of truth which Paul writes about and says... This I write to you so you will know how to conduct yourself in the house of God. Conduct conformed to truth. And not just any truth, but the truth of Scripture. And not just any truth of Scripture, but that which is most sublime and lofty and majestic. This mystery of the godliness is the truth which is to govern us as we come into the house of God and then more broadly to live our life. And what could be more amazing about this truth than that it begins with the incarnation of the Son of God. You can think about all the lofty doctrines that are found in the Bible. But if you just spent the rest of your life thinking about the incarnation, you would have more to think about than you could handle. The Son of God became incarnate and took upon Himself a true human flesh that He might be like us in all things, sin accepted. We couldn't exhaust it. This is the truth then that the Apostle says is to govern us as we come into the house of God. And it's the truth which is to shape our lives. No ordinary truth. Nothing less than the truth of the mystery of the wonder of Christ incarnate. And it's for everybody in their own unique roles and circumstances. Are you a husband this morning? This great truth applies to you. Because the Apostle Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and lay down His life for her. If you're a husband, this great truth of the mystery of godliness is your model for life. Your wife, this is for you. The very submission of Christ to the Father's will unto death is used in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 to describe the very manner of submission of a wife to her husband. So if you're a wife this morning, the great mystery of the gospel is for you too. And for the believer... Every single believer, this is for you. The Apostle Paul said, You were bought with a price. Now glorify God in your body. For every believer and for every Christian, 
And for every person who's ever been bought with blood, the great mystery of the godliness is for you. It is the knowledge which must govern your conduct. It's foundational to all of life. I don't know this morning if you've lost your contact with the gospel. Have you been forgetful of the gospel? Have you pushed the gospel out to the side of your life because you're concentrating on more important things? Have you forgot about your sins? Well, the Bible would bring you right back to the gospel and show you it's the heart and center of what you need to deal with. Because it is the great mystery of the godliness which is the foundation of your conduct. Before Christ. It is this knowledge. Of these things. The apostle says. I write. So that you Timothy. And the church watching over your shoulder. Will know. How to conduct itself. Before the living God. People of God. I submit this to you this morning. I pray that as you submit. Yourself to this calling. You'll know the joy of conduct governed by the truth.